this attack revealed uh, how vulnerable we, we are and uh, that we are facing a war uh, in our country. The referendum has been held. The letter has triggered Article 50, uh, Britain's decision to leave, and the process is underway. Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. It is not in our interests to see the Republic of Ireland do anything other than prosper. We cannot agree to do this unless we firm guarantees that there will not be a hard border in Ireland. Hello and welcome to the latest instalment of Paddy Wants to Know Brexit. As usual, Brian is here. Hey guys, how you doing? And Brian, we had there was a guest to the border. Who who, who was there? Yeah, it was uh, the big man himself, Michelle Barnier, um, was in the lovely, lovely Dundalk um, and the even more lovely Newry. Jeez, lucky him. Um, I suppose it's probably a good week for us then to go on our travels. Um, we're going to people in France, Germany and... The Netherlands, I think. That popular Irish talking point. Yeah, everyone loves uh, Dutch domestic politics, which we're going to go into in depth today. Excellent. So, so Michel Barnet, as you said, was on the border. Who did he talk to? Who, what did he say? What, what do we need to know? What was important? That's a good question, Jack, because they, he came, he saw, he made some statements. He charmed. Yeah, as the, you know, which is exactly what the Romans did back in the day. He met some school children. Met some school children. They asked him if he had a tough job. He said he had a very tough job. Um, everyone felt a little bit sorry for him. Not really. Um, look, these these meetings are a, a, they're a diplomatic kind of manoeuvre to show how much importance he would attach to the Northern Ireland or to the Irish border. And he did well in that. And it was a stakeholder forum and everyone got to say their piece. I mean, he was in town. That was significant. And we've spoken at length, hopefully not ad nauseum, but we've spoke, certainly spoken at length at how the Irish question has been put central in terms of the EU agenda. Barnier has also visited Helsinki. He was in Bulgaria. He has been on his travels as well. So it's hard actually to put this into significance, isn't it? I mean, you, you, I think you put it quite well into context there, but I suppose, you know, the flip side of that argument would be, you know, he he's probably going to all the capitals, right? He's going to Helsinki, Sofia wherever, you know, he went to Dundalk and Newry, um, which are the two towns on either side of the border, which is very clearly making a statement. And again, if you draw a comparison between uh, how he did it with all of his stakeholder forums and going into primary schools, etc., which was well flagged in advance by the negotiating team the week before, um, David Davis also turned up at the border um had a few photo shoots and it was his first time there I believe since the negotiations kicked off well it's only 18 months in so yeah and there's only a year left to go and it's not the naughtiest problem of the negotiations I I must say I did have a chuckle though at the uh, Irish border tweet not the first time I've I've had a chuckle at that Twitter account no it's probably my favourite Twitter account and uh, in actual fact a, a friend of mine got quote retweeted by it the other day and she said that you know you've made it when yeah and she said it was better than when she got a photograph with Macron so I don't know maybe she's describing too much importance to the account but it really is it's one of the best things uh, on Twitter at the moment I think and um, speaking of Davis, I mean, as well as unannounced visits, he, he did have an announced sitting with his own UK parliament. Yeah, so David Davis was up in front of two committees. Um, one was the Brexit committee in the House of Commons, but then also he was up in front of the House of Lords. He, so he's a silver-haired uh, Mark Zuckerberg then, two committees. He's a busy man. He's a, a busy, busy man. Um, 
he's up in front of both of these committees recently, and I think you know they're always really interesting exercises if you have any chance to watch them. Um, he takes a very relaxed, almost cavalier attitude uh, when you compare his appearances to to other senior ministers. Well, we're aiming for October. There's been a, um, a degree of talk about June, having, June, yeah. June, having, June having to be. That wasn't how it was laid out in March. And uh, But, of course, we're, we're used to this. The, the Commission likes to use time pressure mm. in, in this exercise. And we're going we're gonna to get uh, there as fast as we can. But one of the different... But you're saying no to June. Uh, I'm saying I can't guarantee June, is what I'm saying. So a, a regular voice on, on this podcast. Uh, we just heard from Brexit Secretary uh, David Davis there. Um, the Taoiseach Leo Varadkar um, was quick to respond. Uh, the EU guidelines are very clear about June. Uh, they say that we will review the situation uh, at the European Council meeting in June. Uh, and we, as the EU 27, and we are united in this, uh, Ireland's position is the position of 27 member states. We negotiate as 27 and negotiate from a position of strength. And our position, which is in the guidelines, is that we will review progress uh, at the meeting in Brussels in June. And we want to see uh, real and meaningful progress by June if we're going to meet that December deadline. And there is a real risk that we won't meet the December de- or the October deadline, rather, uh, if we don't see real and meaningful progress in June. Uh, it is still early May. It's only the first week of May. Uh, there are a lot of moving, pa- moving parts. There are shifting sands. There's an important UK cabinet meeting underway today, uh, and there are parliamentary votes of significance happening uh, across the water now. Uh, so we need to um, treat this as an evolving situation. And who better to get the kind of political and economic point of view from than um, Irish academic and political economist at the Manchester Metropolitan University, uh, Dr. Catherine Simpson, who had a pretty clear view on deadlines. June is a is a very important deadline, but October is the absolutely fundamental deadline. I think that certainly with uh, Michelle Barnier's visit to Dundalk over the last couple of days, you certainly haven't seen a softening of stance um, by the Irish government uh, and the EU with regards to that backstop option, um, which is basically effect, effectively says that uh, Northern Ireland will stay part of a or the customs union uh, and single market uh, after uh, the UK leaves the European Union. Um, so on the one hand, um, there doesn't seem to be a softening of stances. The compromise has to come from, from London now and has to come from the UK ahead of June. Um, so the Irish government at the moment is still standing firm. Uh, whether that will happen, I think, still remains to be seen. Uh, Theresa May is under considerable pressure again uh, within her cabinet with the resignation of Amber Rudd. Uh, and you might have a kind of Brexit mutineer against her over the next coming weeks. So the internal politics she's facing um, could be be more difficult for making Brexit negotiations going forward. But I think the softening of the stance will come from the UK rather than Ireland in June. So Brian, we're going to hear this terminology a lot, but in a nutshell, the two options being f- put forward by the UK government are something called a customs partnership and a customs arrangement or MaxFac. What do they mean? This is Theresa May's preferred arrangement. Basically, if they want the UK potentially may want to mirror EU rules for goods arriving in the UK. Um, no UK EU border, while the UK are still able to strike their own uh, free trade agreements. 
as well. And the UK government will collect tariff... Uh, they basically collect the tax and then promise to give it to the EU and also promise to track the goods to make sure that if they do go in the EU, the EU get the tax. The EU said, good luck with that, lads. It's not, not workable. Yeah. Uh, so Theresa May can't sell it to the EU yet uh, and she can't sell it internally either. So there is then the customs arrangement. Um, that's preferred by David Davis, um, Liam Fox, Boris Johnson, Jacob Rees-Moggs and uh, probably people who are more hardcore Brexiteers. Basically, they prefer uh, using new technology um, to kind of track all these goods across the UK as they come in and out. Catherine, what do you think of it all? I think, again, uh, if you kind of cast your minds back to December during phase one of negotiations, when this kind of really came to a head, uh, in particular with the DUP uh, kind of throwing their weight around saying, uh, you know, about uh, regulatory alignment or regulatory divergence. Uh, the issue of customs partnership or agreement or union um, really may potentially come down to language in order to appease, um, you know, those within government potentially. Um, and I think that's what will be the the main key issue. Um, again, this is what the EU does uh, quite a lot, has a lot of negotiation experience in this area. Um, but, you know, one of the things I think that gets missed fundamentally when we talk about uh, this idea is that customs unions are not unique to the European Union. What is unique to the European Union is the single market. Um, the European single market is unique to the European Union. So it's actually not the customs union part uh, that is um the issue, it's more the single market aspect. Uh, so again, that's why I think language will play a really key role uh, in actually trying to iron iron this out uh, come June. So it's also probably worth noting that David Davis also said, you know, or alluded to at a committee in the House of Lords uh, recently, you know, the physical infrastructure, if it ever has to be there in Northern Ireland um, or Ireland, might not necessarily be at the border, but might be a few miles removed back from it or at a different place. However, David Davis himself has said they have not trialed, done any trials on any of these uh, new technologies, apparently. So they, they want to do it, but it has not, not yet, it does not yet exist. And I thought Ali Ranson, as usual, was very good on this. And, and we can hear from now, she spoke to us on, I think it was the third podcast, wasn't it? So well worth listening back to that was on Trusted Traders, but here's her view on customs arrangement. We're talking about unprecedented, and I think that was also the conclusion, you know, as you mentioned, drawn by the Northern Ireland Affairs Committee. Could you do, could you effectively have almost everything done away from the border? Yes. Is that how everywhere it works everywhere else? No. <laughs> uh, so this, this is, I think that's why you need some humility when saying, well, of course you can do everything away from the border. Yes, but I think understand the nature of what you're proposing and how unprecedented it is. That's just moving the border, right? That, you know, some people may take offence at that and it may become a target. So it's kind of like pre-drinking, is it? Like, you don't actually get drunk at the place. You arrive already, you know, slightly tipsy. <laughs> so technically you haven't drunk at the place, but you're, you know, for all intents and purposes. <laughs> We've gone through the process. Yeah, but you're already you're already well jarred and... Yeah, and the damage is already done. Um, so yeah, those are the two options we understand that are on the table from the UK government. We also understand that the EU has basically said neither of these are probably going to work, but they haven't even formally, properly been presented for proper negotiation between the UK and the EU. 
which is why, as discussed in the previous podcast, the backstop is very important. So boats, boats, boats. This is a very big boat. It's called... Brexit Buster. And it's a boat. I'm on a... So this boat, uh, why are we talking about it, Jack? Why is it called the Brexit Buster? To give you an idea of the size of it, the parking on the on the boat, if you were to put it all in one line, would stretch... Do you want to guess how long it will stretch? From here to Longford? Not quite that far, no. It stretched a- eight kilometres. That's about as far as I can run before I collapse. On, on a good day. Yeah, on a very good day. Um, and it's, to put it in context as well, so it's twice, twice as big as any other boat in Dublin Port. So this, I mean, I think you were saying earlier, um, off air, this is kind of the first physical manifestation of what's going to happen after after Brexit. Yeah, uh, it's really interesting to see, you know, businesses are just getting on with it in many respects. And this is the largest manifestation of that. It's going, I think, from Dublin, uh, Dublin Port to Rotterdam. I believe it is. Well, there were Belgian officials there, so the actual route I don't think is determined, but the idea is that it'll, it'll bring goods around the UK, or so you won't have to go... So the land bridge, which we mentioned before, of goods going through the UK, can be avoided with this massive boat. Yeah, and, and you know, this podcast mainly consists a lot of the time of trying to analyse the political temperature in the UK, Ireland, and the EU. Uh, and a lot of people say that's waffle. Um, this is business getting on with it, dealing well, with ho- hold it one on, way or the other. I mean, if it does go to Belgium, there will presumably be waffles available on board. So, I mean, I hope so. I assume so. waffle so. can't be excluded from... Waffles, boats, you know, God knows what they're going to get if they go into the Netherlands. And uh, and we'll be hearing from Catherine in a future podcast, actually. And I mean, she, she's actually very interesting on Ireland and the EU, Brian. Yeah, I thought Catherine was really interesting. Um, talked about Ireland's relationship with the EU uh, and why we have such a you know fond relationship. You know, is probably the best way of putting it. You know, the figures speak for themselves, and Catherine really kind of goes into why that is the case. And before that introspection in Ireland, the EU, it's probably a good idea to get a, a view from the outside, from different member states of the EU. So it's a good opportunity to um, get the view from France. Germany and uh, the Netherlands. So we'll hear from them after the break. So now this isn't our Eurovision section. Um, This is, I suppose, one of the realities of Brexit is we're going to have to get to know our neighbours. And this is our taking the opportunity to get to know France a bit better, Germany a bit better, and uh, the kind of dark horse in all of this, uh, the Netherlands. Yeah, it was really interesting to hear everyone's views on their own political system. After hearing those three countries, how do we how do we come out of it? Not all that bad, right? Uh, that's one of my main takeaways. More broadly, Ireland is never as... Uh, screwed up as we think we are when you go and look at other people's politics. No, but it is an interesting thing because, I mean, certainly with Marcel and the Russia discussion, we were talking about how, in his perception, Russia isn't a democracy. And yet I always find it interesting when you talk about other European countries that the democracies are all completely different and the politics are all completely different, even though it's portrayed as one democratic 
union of member states. And yet the differences are really stark when you actually get into it. Yeah, really profound. You look at Macron breaking the two-party model, in effect, in France, you look at... Well, that's also a presidential system, which is different yeah. to all the other ones yeah. anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and then you have the, the multi-party system in the Netherlands with four parties in government and ten parties overall. And then Germany going back eventually, after seven or eight months of negotiations... We to, won't get into that voting system, because no. <laughs> that would break your head. No, we, we would not impose that upon the listeners. Finally going back to a grand coalition model in Germany um, and the rise of the far right... In all three countries, actually, which is a, a, a theme that or, or a strand that, that binds I, I, them together. I, when you say rise of the far right, I mean, the interesting thing in all three of the countries was how the mainstream parties seem to be aping the language. So the parties have risen themselves, but they've also changed the debate, changed the language. They've changed the debate, they've changed the language. Um, yes, the mainstream have bet them back for now, but they are embedded within all of those three countries' political landscapes, as I, I think we'll hear about um, when we listen to our three uh, correspondents. Alors, on commence the French take now um, with uh, Paddy Paris, a.k.a. Raphael Bohu. Welcome, Raphael. Thank you for inviting me. And maybe you could just talk us through kind of Macron and his pro-European outlook and what maybe that means for Brexit. Emmanuel Macron, I think... Uh... What he did is uh, is uh, unbelievable. He was almost unknown when he ran for for presidency. So yes, what he did is uh, incredible. Emmanuel Macron, uh, as you as you may know, is a is a very pro European person. He he, he made a, a very famous speech at La Sorbonne and he, he declared he he wanted a transformation of of the EU. Which means for for him uh, a EU uh, with a deeper political integration, and the Brexit seems to be an opportunity for him and for France and for the EU to to go deeper in political integration. He wants he wants uh, this integration uh, on uh, defense, of course, uh, on uh, migration. On uh, on taxes, <laughs> and yes, he he made a lot of uh, proposals uh, for a stronger EU, and he seems very lucky. The UK is not uh, anymore in the in the in the European Union. So so the UK was kind of a roadblock, and as you said, he's he's lucky. So it breaks. It's actually a positive for European integration, and yes, yeah, yeah, I think so. Then in terms of you talking about more integrated tax, there's the technology tax, um, which just for those who, who aren't across taxation matters, is... Aren't we all, Jack? <laughs> so it's a proposed 3% um, tax on the turnover, not profit, turnover of companies over 750 million, which there aren't mm. that many of. That's a European Commission proposal, but I suppose... What's Macron's thoughts on, in Ireland, we're very sensitive to corporate tax particularly, but I suppose technology tax is a way of getting at the corporate tax base as well. What's Macron's view? It suggested, yes, uh, a better uh, harmonization of tax policies. And uh, he, he focused on taxing technology companies uh, such as uh, Facebook and Apple. And he said these taxes could uh, counterbalance uh, financing crime due to Brexit. And yes, on corporate tax base for, for the Eurozone member states, our corporate tax is very high. 
compared to other countries such as you, uh, Ireland, and such as uh, the UK. So um, he proposed this corporate tax uh, to be put down to 25% in 2022 in France. And he also proposed to standardize corporate tax rights in the EU to improve society's fiscal competition. So it's a bad news for Ireland. It's devastating. <laughs> but, yeah. I mean. but it's it's uh, it's I think it's good news for yes for the EU and for to attract uh, some some inv- investors and some societies in France. The other thing we want to talk about is I mean you said Macron was an unknown running for the presidency. The Two main parties are, are pretty much gone, aren't they? Or, or what's the state of play in, within the French political system at the moment? Macron's victory is a, it's, it's, it's really a breakup of the old left-right uh, divide and the old party system because we, we saw during the campaign, during the presidential campaign, former ministers such as the socialist Manuel Valls and uh, the Republican Bruno Le Maire rejecting their own party to, to campaign for, for Macron's movement uh, en marche. And uh, what we see uh, today in France is that Republicans and the new leader of the Republicans, Laurent Vauquier, is going to the far right. Uh, he has a very strong far right rhetoric, uh, for instance, on immigration. And uh, he's also uh, highly convinced uh, protectionists and on the opposite, we, we have uh, Mélenchon and, uh, and Marine Le Pen, uh, who are the anti-system candidates, who were the anti-system candidates. And uh, uh, we saw that uh, they, they had the support of um, rural areas, you know, uh, which uh, suffer lost jobs and public services, and, and, and they they backed uh, the, the, the anti-system candidates, Marine Le Pen and Mélenchon. So, yes, uh, this victory of Emmanuel Macron is a defeat for the two mainstream parties, but he also, it also revealed uh, how deeply fractured our country is today uh, between the, the rural area, the, the, poor, the poor social classes and the, and the higher social classes living in cities with good income, good education, and who who clearly uh, supported Emmanuel Macron. So, yeah. And when you talk about the anti-system parties, I mean, they're also anti-establishment, but I suppose from the perspective of this podcast, both uh, Mélenchon and Le Pen are also very anti-European. Yes. Whereas Macron is this pro-European. He walked out with his entrance music as Ode to Joy. Yes, yeah, Marine Le Pen during the campaign, uh, she, she, you know, she wanted to hold a, a, a referendum on France leaving the EU. She clearly accused Macron to be uh, under the orders of, uh, of Germany, of Angela Merkel, and, and, and we saw uh, how successful her proposals were among some French people. And this is very worrying because it, it, uh, it happened uh, in a very critical moment for France, because we, our country, uh, faced major terrorism atta- terrorism attacks. So, so they wanted to 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 divide our country while to face this uh, terrorism threat. We we really have to be united and and to be uh, unit within the EU. 
I don't know if you want to talk about this or not, but you were in, you were out in Paris the night of the Bataclan attacks. Yes. You, you were a victim of it. I mean, is that is that impacted the way you see politics? Oh yes, yes, clearly. Uh, it's it's it has changed uh, the way I'm living. Uh, because it's uh, it um, it uh, um, um, it reveals it, it the the this attack uh, revealed uh, how vulnerable we we are and uh, that uh, we we are in a country. Uh, we we, we it, it's it's uh, we, we we are facing a war uh, in our country so so yes it's uh it has changed my 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 way uh, the way uh, i i see uh, just from visiting paris recently it's very noticeable that the increased security presence you know even going into fnac and yeah. other areas so it does have and i think it's something that maybe here in Ireland we don't appreciate it does actually have a direct impact on just the daily banalities of going to the shops no no really really I don't think it has a real impact but uh, uh, it's important for people we don't want to forget we don't want to to forget uh, what was done and and we had uh, in the recent days a new attack on the supermarket in the south of France, so we know this could, we could, we could face that again soon. So yes, I think it's important. So, so it's as much a kind of <laughs> a, a mentality um, that you're nearly stealing yourself for it or preparing for it, as opposed to maybe the day to day how you go about things. Yes. You talked about La, Rep- La Republique um, going a bit more far right. You'll have to uh, excuse my pronunciations. Are they basically trying to steal the clothes um, and the votes of Marine Le Pen by doing that? Yes. Yeah. Laurent Vauquier uh, knows that Marine Le Pen is uh, a bit weakened by uh, the presidential election and he knows he, he can uh, attract uh, some some of her voters. So yes, yes, it's uh, it's his strategy now. Uh, Brian was mentioning there that the Republican may be stealing the clothes of Le Pen. Is immigration a big issue? I mean, we're familiar here with the debate around Calais, the jungle, but is is it a live issue within the French political debate? Yes, yes, Emmanuel Macron wants the the brexit uh, to be an opportunity to to migration uh, for france especially as you said for for the issue of calais he says better cooperation with the uk even if the country is outside uh, the eu uh, could uh, improve the the management of the humanitarian crisis the city faces faces is facing today and uh, we have to build uh, more infrastructure to boost local economy in this city. Uh, it's a very big issue, and and the jungle is still there today uh, because migrants are, are still there. So so the issue is not resolved. We're just ordinary people. 
which way to go. People often okay. talk about, you know, the UK and the EU and what we're negotiating. What lies underneath this is people and their futures. Brexit has so many consequences. Brexit is not first and not only about uh, London or Brussels or uh, high-level negotiation. Brexit is about also the daily life of all these people. This ain't a movie, no. No fairy tale conclusion, y'all. It gets more confusing every day. We're going to talk about Dutch politics, which I don't think anyone has ever really said in an Irish context, to take us through what will hopefully be a fascinating, actually, insight into uh, the land of smoke and pancakes. It's uh, our Dutch friend, Sebastian, who can give us the kind of local update. Hi, how are you doing, Sebastian? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm good. And is it fair to say that Dutch politics is in a bit of a rut? It, it is. It is. It's been, because uh, as you know, maybe know that Dutch politics has a multi-party system, right? And so we have, I think at, at a moment, we have about 10, maybe 12 parties in parliament. And the coalition is existing right now out of four parties. So there's a lot of, as we say in Dutch, poldering going on. A lot of... Uh, Water to the wine, as we say as well. I don't know if that's an English proverb as well, but yeah. So there's a lot of uh, compromises going on in, in Dutch politics. The elections last year, Mark Rutte eventually kind of won out after a lot of people were worried about, uh, or uh, some people were worried about, Gert Fielders and, and the far right. And I wonder if you could take us through that election and how we ended up where we are today. Well, and it's and it's. I think it was interesting that you mentioned that because people say, "Oh, yeah, Gerdrulis didn't win," but in the end, he became, I think, twice as big. Became the second party, whereas Mark Rutte's party, the Favour Day, they lost some seats, right? So they spinned it right and they marketed it right, and they're still the big winner. Uh, but I think that is still uh, an issue we're facing here in the Netherlands and actually in all of uh, all of Europe. And the the four party coalition, who's actually in the four parties? Are they spread across the spectrum? Well, yes and no, but they they spread across on the right side of the spectrum, right? So you get the favor D, who is is right, really right, conservative. Um, this is your, uh, you know, your cor- your corporate party, as we'd say. Um, then you got the CDA, uh, more like the Christian conservatives. Um, <laughs> Already moving towards the middle a little bit more. They got, uh, I believe, the Kirsten Union, which is another Christian party. It's a little bit more towards the center. And then you got the De 66, which is a progressive party, but also more catered towards economy. And uh, so it's, it's it's in the middle, but a little bit more to the right. If that makes sense. So it's 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 a right wing government, but it's not as uh, conservative or as right wing as we had. Not the previous government, but the government before that, when it was just the CDA and the FFD. And then, when, then it was actually a hung candidate because the PVV of Wilders was uh, supporting it. But that went to shits. And, and the last <laughs> government the last government was between FFD, which is our like pretty right one, and the Labour Party. It was a coalition of the two of them. And they actually managed to uh, stick together for four years. So that was quite a surprise. But the only one who had to pay for it was the Labour Party because they dropped in their uh, seats in government or in the uh, parliament. Some people 
suggested, uh, and perhaps you can tell us if this is true or not, that Russia kind of appropriated some of the the language and the policy from Wilders. Is there any truth to that? I think uh, there is, but then you're talking to somebody who's more in the middle, left of the middle progressive, but he never, you know, how politics work. He was always politically correct. So he could never uh, really say that, that he said those things. But I think he was moving a little bit more. His party was moving a little bit more towards the direction of the PVV in Gert Village. So he was kind of semi-dog whistling, as it were. Yeah, yeah, in a way. Yeah, to, to, to get photos that were, you know, that went to Wilder's party from his own party back. Then moving on from that, what is the Dutch position on Brexit? Because that's the whole raison d'etre of this show. You know, Where do you guys stand on it? You know, it depends who you talk to. And I think sort of like people like Geert Wilders, they like it because eventually he would like to leave the EU as well and wants to have a, a exit. Uh, but I think if you, if you, the more general view on it is that it's really sad, um, especially because the Dutch, you know, we're big on exporting. I think after, um, after Germany, Great Britain, uh, together with the States, I believe, I'm not, I don't have the numbers ready here, is actually our main trading partner. So there's 162,000 lorries that travel between the United Kingdom and Holland every year. And to give you more of an example, apparently Netherlands is going to be the second most affected by Brexit after Ireland. And the Rabobank um, calculates that even a soft Brexit could knock off 3% of Dutch GDP by 2030. So you guys are right in it with us. Well, yeah, exactly. And I think it's, but that's just for trading. And I think the Dutch were innovative innovative enough to find it somewhere else. But yeah, it's going to be a big blow, especially uh, for uh, f- fishermen as well. And as you said, uh, just, just just this trading trading going on. Um, but then I would say on the plus end, and that's maybe also, well, so for starters, you know, the EMA, the European Medicine Association or something is coming to Amsterdam, moving from London away. And I think also believe because Amsterdam has a really nice startup environment, there might be a lot of startups coming and call me optimistic, but I think a lot of good can come from come, can come from that as well. So I don't want to be just pessimistic, but the general feeling in Amsterdam is that it's shitty that's happening. <laughs> yeah, so you, you're a really in, intriguing guest to have on, Saba, because you're probably the most uh, overtly uh, optimistic, maybe that's just your, your personality, about the opportunities that that lie in Brexit in, in spite of the reports from Rabobank and elsewhere. Um, uh, yeah, yes, definitely. I still believe it will be a big blow to the economy and I would rather not have Brexit. Don't get me wrong. But I also like to look at it at the bright side. Okay, it is happening. If that's what they're voting for, is it going to finally happening? Then I believe, you know, a lot of the financial uh, institutions will probably move to Frankfurt. And I think a lot of the startups, but it's just my average guy, point of view on it, we'll, we'll come to Amsterdam. Rutte has been Prime Minister since 2010, but prior to last year's election, he hadn't really spoken about the European Union at all. But it seems that he's now had to come out on the defensive because of Brexit and because of Wilders. Yes, indeed. I mean, as I said, you know, the Netherlands, even though we contribute a lot to the EU as an economy and as people, we gain a lot because of the free trade. I mean, ever since the uh, and even before that, the 1600s, we've been a trade nation, so yeah. I suppose on a practical level, 
I was struck by the fact that the you guys are going to employ something around 750 additional customs officers. Um, would you say you guys are more prepared than Britain for Brexit? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, in, in a way, yes, because for us, it is, I mean, there's only some extra paperwork uh, and we can still trade with the rest of the EU and we still get all those benefits. Um, so I think in that way, yes, but it's also easier for us to be prepared because they're, you know, it's not, not so divided here because there's nothing we can do about it. It's happening. Whereas I feel that in Britain, even though the call has already been made, the call was so close. And also, you know, on election day, the demographics that showed up showed that, you know, maybe it wasn't, in my opinion, the fairest referendum. Um, that there's still a belief maybe in Britain that it can be avoided. And so there's a lot more protests, and maybe even in the parliament. I mean, again, I don't follow British poly- uh, politics that much, but that's kind of the sense I'm getting. In terms of the positive aspects of Brexit um, for the Netherlands you were talking about earlier, Gerd Wilders was talking about an exit, the Netherlands leaving the European Union. Has that been altered at all by Brexit or is that still going on? Not at all. Not at all. I think the issues Brexit is facing now and Britain is facing now actually make a stronger case for the Netherlands to stay within the EU. And especially having Germany as one of the most pro-EU partners in the EU and being be, being that Germany is our one of our actually our most important trading partner, I think uh, we won't be so soon leaving the EU, and I don't think that tendance that because right now it's only really Wilders uh, Wilders's party who's saying that we should have an exit. So yeah, so-called technology tax, which some see as a backdoor to get at the corporate tax taken in by countries like the Netherlands and Ireland, is is that another hot topic? Um, it is definitely, and especially also with uh, in combination, because that's the technology, but it's for centuries, uh, for centuries, at least for decades, has been a lot of companies using the Netherlands and Ireland as a as a tax haven, or as we call it in Dutch, briefenbus firma, so like uh, just mailbox uh, companies. Um, and and I think it also ties in with the banking crisis and the absurd bonuses the bankers would get. Uh, and that, you know, as long as, as long as you're big enough, you don't have to pay. And I think that's a more tendency that is really being felt among the people in the Netherlands. But I don't think that's not so much in politics. I mean, they, they try to t- talk around it saying, oh, if you, you know, if we raise up our, uh, if we raise up our uh, a corporate tax and they will stay away and we lose a lot of jobs, which I don't think is that much true as it is everywhere right but um yeah so within the population there's a lot of uh, well fight fight against it in a way but not not necessarily that everybody's started protesting or anything because because in ireland at, at some point it's it's almost it's it's almost above the inequality argument it becomes a national competence and our own sovereignty is at stake when it comes to taxes is that a similar perception in the netherlands no, I th- no, I think it's in the analysis it's just a notion of being unfair. Yeah, no, I, I find that really intriguing um, because, uh, as Jack says, this is just, it, it's sacrosanct, you know, barring you're on the f- what would be termed the far left in Ireland, you simply don't talk about 
changing the corporation tax. And it's interesting that it's not held in the same view or in the same way in the Netherlands where you might you, you, where you might face similar pressures. Yes, exactly. But I think in the Netherlands, I think there may be less of a pressure. I mean, we're not coming from a situation where, you know, when you, you, you guys kind of needed it to become the Celtic Tiger to kind of get, get out of the... Uh, the, the the recessions that were happening and happening at least I'm not too familiar with uh, Irish history but that's what I know people don't know that you know you hear European Union sounds so oh the European Union sounds so innocent it's not innocent they're very tough they're very smart we lose a hundred billion dollars a year so Brian hot take we've just had our Dutch friend on there what's going on in Holland they seem to be getting a lot, getting along with it, much as we heard from our French and from our German colleagues that you know they are either not that fussed about Brexit or they're making the best of a bad lot and they're making plans to take advantage of it. The idea that because it's outside their control, it's almost easier to make the preparations rather than fight over what the Brexit's going to look like. And his optimism as well was something that caught us refreshing. Yeah, certainly. G- given our last uh, in our first three podcasts, no, none of the guests were, you know, especially optimistic. He, he had the sunniest disposition towards it and was looking at the opportunities um, that could accrue to to the Netherlands and to Amsterdam as a kind of a as an innovation city or, or a hub for innovation, rather. And another thing as well that that's perhaps maybe affects our generation more than others is is what he's talking there about inequality, which was also interesting in, in how he linked it into corporate tax rate. Yeah. Fascinating, really, in certainly in my time in the UK. Um, it, that argument about inequality was linked to corporation tax more than I'd ever heard it in Ireland. But it isn't Ireland's role or indeed ability to be a global tax collector. What we can influence and what we can do, we're going to do while retaining the competitiveness of a very small and very open economy. Ireland, if you are in Ireland, it, you charge 12.5%. If you are someone global, you put everything there, they don't see you. My problem is when we speak now about harmonisation, what is the idea about harmonization? It's never to raise, to get down taxes. Never. It's always how we will raise taxes up. Here's Marcel Dersus. So Marcel was good enough to give us the kind of insight into his native Germany. After an uncharacteristically long time, uh, Germany does actually have a government again. We have another grand coalition between the center-right CDU of Angela Merkel and her allies, the CSU. And they're in a coalition with the center-left Social Democrats. Um, We have a coalition treaty. Um, We do have new ministers. And they basically started to work. Like the so-called GroCo, I mean, is there a pro-European element to it? Or is, is, is it likely to result in a new, fresh impetus? Definitely. So, I mean... Yeah, but so both main, uh, you know, political groups in Germany, the center right and the center left, are, are very much pro-European. 
Now, obviously, there's a difference between being pro-European and being in favor of more European integration. And the, a lot of people uh, have the hope uh, that there'll be new impetus for further European integration from this new German government, because it includes the Social Democrats. And the Social Democrats are very much in favor of further European integration. And they see Macron as almost a unique chance to uh, reach out to Paris and to do things that are not only in the interest of, of Berlin, but also in the interest of France. Because Macron is seen as somebody who's very reasonable and somebody that you can actually do business with. Now, whether that actually happens or not um, remains to be seen. I think there's a good chance that you will have symbolic uh, changes that might not actually mean that much in practice. Is Merkel kind of fundamentally weakened as a result of the protracted negotiations? And are we finally looking at the last stages of her premiership? So the Merkel era is definitely coming to an end. This is going to be her last term, and I'm not convinced that she is actually going to serve it in full. So in a way, this is finally the right time to say that you know Merkel is almost over. But as always, I think we underestimate Merkel at our own peril. So the argument can be made that she's weakened, but again, you know, she's been in power for more than 12 years. She's still popular. She did become chancellor again. Uh, she did make it happen. And she still has a lot of support in the population. Moving on to, to, to Brexit matters, uh, has the coalition forming made any material difference to the, the Brexit negotiations? We're now moving on towards the, the outline of the future trading arrangements. Uh, is there anything interesting happening in German politics in that regard? No. <laughs> I think Brits overestimate how important it is who is actually in government in Germany, because um, Germany has a fundamental interest in the European Union working out and in the integrity of the common market. And it doesn't really matter whether you have a social democrat in power or whether you have a conservative in power. When push comes to shove, Germany is always going to pursue policies uh, that will protect uh, the European Union. Um, and I think a lot of Brits don't really understand that. Um, you know, you had a lot of talk about uh, Merkel, you know, coming to save uh, the UK. And that was never going to happen. I know domestically within Germany, there's been maybe a little bit of disquiet around the reemergence of something that maybe you can explain for us. Is it HIMAT? Yeah. And it's been combined with the interior ministry there. What is HIMAT and why why is it a talking point at the moment? Yeah, that's that's a very good question. Um, so I think Germany is, in a way, struggling with its identity. Uh, so I think that the way that Germans used to define uh, being German was very much through, you know, blood, uh, the, the color of your skin, uh, you know, being a native German speaker. Bastian Schweinsteiger, um, so, is that a kind of fair depiction? <laughs> I think Bastian Schweinsteiger is a fair example of somebody who would be, you know, very German uh, also back in the day. Um so I, I, it's very different to, you know, the concept of citizenship that you might have in the United States, for example, right, where I think the perception of themselves and of their country is a lot more abstract in a way. You know, and you might not have been born there. You might not look a certain way. But if you believe in the values, uh, you're an American, just like anybody else. And obviously, Germany 
you know, at least since the Second World War, has had an influx of people from from abroad, from very different cultures, uh, people who look very differently to your stereotypical German, you know, like myself, basically, uh, like Schweinsteiger. And we, 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 Germany has had a very tough time coming to terms with that and grappling with that. And the refugee crisis has only made the situation more difficult because it means that this really is a discussion that we need to have, right? Because Germans should welcome, you know, people who need help, you know, refugees and so forth, and they should welcome foreigners. But being here is, you know, it's also a privilege, right? So we need to be able to communicate the expectations, you know, like how, how do people need to behave that come here? And what does it mean, uh, you know, to live here and to integrate and so forth? And as part of that now, you uh, have this change at the Interior Ministry, which also is responsible for HIMART now. And Heimat is, it's very difficult to explain, I guess. Um, I don't think there's a word for it in English, but it's almost a feeling as much as it is, uh, you know, anything that you can actually touch. Um, so, you know, when, when you think of home, right? And I don't mean your apartment. I mean, where you're from, you know, and what the weather is like and maybe what, I don't know, the bread smells like and what you eat and, and the people around and the nature around you and so forth. I guess that, in a way, is is Heimat. Um, and you have this as part of the interior ministry now. And essentially, it's part of this ongoing discussion of what it means to be German and what we expect of others who, who come into this country. And the new interior minister is um, not from Merkel's CDU, but he's a part of the CSU. So uh, his name is Seehofer. Um, he's... You know, very much uh, to the right of Merkel, and he is facing an election in a state uh, in Bavaria, or his party is facing an election in Bavaria, and he's very scared of the uh, far right AFD. So essentially, what uh, the the party is trying to do is to take some of the topics that are the strength of the AFD, and they try to incorporate them in you know in their, in their governance. And um, one of them is you know being you know being tough on refugees. Uh, talking about the expectations uh, that we have, uh, they want to ban the burqa uh, and so forth. And I, I think from what you're saying, I mean, the high mat sounds very much like what we'd have here in your parish, um, and it's a very much a home place. And you're saying this is a seminal moment for the German identity. Are the AFD, as the biggest opposition party, are they a force that's going to continue or is this going to be like a UKIP moment in the UK where the conservatives ape their policies and they well literally sail on a boat down the Thames throwing fish off it is that is that what we may be seeing with the AFD or are they here to stay I mean I think you're right but the reason that they don't have UKIP anymore is because the conservatives are now UKIP right essentially um, in Germany you have two you have a big discussion on how to deal with the AFD um, one group of people says that in order to weaken the AFD, you need to solve some of the things that people are worried about, right? So you need to be tough on crime. You need to uh, uh, deport refugees when they don't have a right to stay. Uh, you need to put focus on things like Heimat and so forth. And that is how you're going to, uh, to weaken them. And then you have another group of people who say, no, that is exactly the wrong approach. If you start to work on all these topics that are being pushed by the AFD, you're not going to weaken them, 
you are going to strengthen them because you give them legitimacy, right? And when people are faced with going for, you know, sort of a conservative or to go for the AFD, they're ultimately going to go for what they consider to be the real thing, right? And not go for somebody who tries to implement some of their policies. Uh, I, what I think is that uh, for too long, successive German governments have failed to solve the problems that people are worried about. So infrastructure in Germany, for example, really isn't in great shape. You know, the roads, the internet, and so forth. It's a big problem. Uh, there are a lot of people in this country who are legally not allowed to be in the country, but for some reason, they are not being deported. And that makes people feel unsafe. So I think that if some of these problems are solved, uh, ultimately, it is going to weaken the AFD. And in many ways, it has already happened. Right. So I think the reason why the AFD became so strong during the cause of the refugee crisis is because people felt that the government had lost control. You know, people were sort of streaming into the country. Nobody knew who they were. Uh, you know, uh, school children couldn't couldn't do PE anymore because they needed, you know, the the buildings in order to house refugees and so forth. And that has all quieted down. You know, people aren't really arriving that you know in in large numbers anymore. Uh, you know, the school children can do PE again and so forth. So there's a sense of order again. And if this new German government pushes ahead with that a bit more, I think. The AFD will disappear. So there's a lot of, as we say in Dutch, poldering going on. Oh, baby, why don't you just meet me in the middle? I'm losing my mind just a little. Mélenchon and, uh, and Marine Le Pen. Uh... So why don't you just meet me in the middle? In the middle, no, no, baby. And when people are faced with going for you know, sort of a conservative or to go for the AFD, they're ultimately going to go for what they consider to be the real thing. A lot of uh, water to the wine, as we say as well. I don't know if that's an English proverb as well, but yeah. After Brexit, these are going to be the people we're going to have to make more coalitions with, more understanding with. And I think we're going to have to probably get to grips with that more than we have up to now. Yeah, we need to understand their politics more. We need to understand their issues more. And we stood with and or behind the UK on a large amount of issues uh, in the EU. And even though... I think we say it in nearly every podcast, it is worth repeating in every podcast. Like This is the fundamental dynamics of Ireland's relationship uh, with other EU member states is going to have to change and, and, and indeed is, is changing already uh, in the way in which perhaps different voting patterns will emerge or different relationships um, will uh, flourish or not, as the case may be. Yeah, so, and, I, and I think the Netherlands is a, is a really good example and template to follow because they certainly go into ad hoc coalitions on different issues. Um, and they're going to have to take a more prominent role without the UK in the European Union. And we're similarly going to have to follow along a lot of the same lines. Yeah, one, one, 100%. So it feels like a war. That was geez, that, that that struck me as very powerful. To hear it said out loud um, when you really see it on the TV a lot. And, and just, I mean... 
she was actually in the restaurant where the attacks were happening. So she witnessed it firsthand. Yeah, and it would be difficult not to be changed or not to have your perspective altered in some way, shape or form. Um, So to hear that firsthand was really fascinating. And you could hear her kind of struggle to find the words in an appropriate way that conveyed what she thought about that. Um, And that was really interesting to, to hear, I thought. And I, and I think the sort of reaction to that is also interesting because you have what she described as the urban and the rural split, but you have on the one side the protectionists fracture um, within the French political system. And then on the other side, you've got Macron, who's very pro-European. And that just seemed an interesting reaction to all of the, what's going on in France, but particularly the terrorism question. I mean, that was, as far as I understand it, a large part of the French election, you know, Macron is internationalist, outward-looking, deeper EU integration. Um, while he still brings France along with him is the real challenge, uh, and we hear a bit more about some of those challenges. Uh, it, it's a real challenge for Macron uh, to do that and also to be as ambitious as he clearly is um, for deeper EU reform. Um, whether he gets that or not, I would rather... Yeah, and I mean, the the, the recent um, joint position taken by the Irish government, um, along with the Netherlands and six other countries, is also a resistance to this deeper integration. So it's very much an active question on the European scene. Yeah, and I think if you look back and listen back to, I think, our, our first podcast with Paddy Brussels, um, he talked about Ireland needing to A, get new allies across Europe and build new coalitions but also figuring out where it can push back uh, and how it does that. Because if the corporation tax issue in Ireland is going to remain sacrosanct, um, what else are we going to give up in turn? Um, Or who can we realistically rely on uh, to help us fight our battles now that the UK is not going to be in uh, the EU any longer? So Marcel was good enough to stay on with us and give us the kind of insight into his native Germany and what's going on there. And I think, Brian, you asked if it was the end of Merkel. Yeah, his answer was very interesting. He seems to think yes, but never underestimate Mutti, uh, as she's known in Germany, mother. Um, and he really, it really is the coming to, it really is coming to the end of an era in Germany. Um when she goes, there is going to be a blank space to fill. And I think you can probably expect, uh, and hopefully we'll hear from Marcel again in the future, who are these individuals that are going to replace her. But I think we also talked about um, the rise of the AFD, and the far, uh, which are the far right party in Germany, and that German sense of identity as well, which I thought was a, a really interesting topic too. Yeah, because I, like it may seem you know, maybe not the most important thing in the world, but they've basically changed the way that the interior ministry is structured and they've introduced what we discussed, that, which is basically your homeland. But it's it's more specific than the homeland. It's like where your parish is from. And that identity is now within the interior ministry. So it's a very deliberate and very pronounced move to put identity to the fore, particularly when the Interior Ministry is effectively justice, crime, punishment, citizenship, all in one, with now this extra dimension. 
And I thought it was interesting that he pointed out to, it's maybe a distinction we don't really appreciate here, but it's Merkel's sister party in the South who are really feeling the heat from the AFD are now really promoting um, what we may have considered a stereotypical German um, look, a German way of speaking, a German way of living, which seems to be counterbalancing what they've had in terms of the influx and the increased um, immigration, both in terms of the recent immigration as well as the Turkish workers who've come in over the years. So that was, I mean, I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I think Marcel talks Marcel talks quite eloquently about all of this, but and it was also in terms of drawing comparisons across of our different correspondents um, that this was an issue uh, in France as well, um, and how that was being dealt with. And we we heard, I think, about uh, the the, the centre right party in France, basically. It's that fair? Well, it's the kind of phoenix. I mean, the, the center, like, we're in the fifth French Republic, to give you a bit of perspective. <laughs> and this, I think, is the third incarnation of yeah. what used to be the UMP. So they were l- looking to ape some of the language from the the National Front, Marianne Le Pen, uh, because that issue did hit home uh, to large parts of French society as well. So seeing all those comparisons across countries, I thought was really interesting. Um and I hope the, the the listeners find it interesting as well to see those different, uh, similar themes emerging in different countries with different politics and different electoral systems and different economies. But we haven't had it here at all. Well, if you listen to Kevin Sharkey running for the Irish presidency, we, we might be beginning to see. But he's very he's very much an outlier. I mean, Absolutely, these are yeah. these are the mainstream parties that are that are taking these lines. Absolutely, um, we either have yet to face it in Ireland. Um, or we're, a, I would say, a relatively lucky country not to be relatively accepting of uh, immigration. Certainly to, the, certainly to the point where there is not a, an overtly uh, right-wing party w- making, uh, some, some could argue, racist views. Yeah, I, th- I thought it was really interesting because Marcel pointed to the fact that some children weren't able to do physical education in Germany because the sports halls were populated by, you know, the recent um, arrivals of immigrants. Like, that's, on a practical level, that's a very serious issue. Now, obviously, it's unfortunate that there weren't other accommodations available. And I thought it was also interesting that, obviously, Raphael has experienced terrorism firsthand. These are experiences that we don't have here and particularly in the South anyway, of, of, of first-hand experiences. And so perhaps it's a bit benign when we say we're very accepting and aren't we great. The fact is our experiences are very different as well. Yeah, well, look, we're Ireland is a small, rainy country in the outpost of Europe that, that has not experienced all of this um, mass immigration on the scale in which certainly Germany has and certainly don't have the same colon- doesn't have the same colonial history that France has. Um so it would be difficult for us to have had the same experiences. Um, so we're not just simply a great bunch of lads in Ireland. And uh, I think that's a good place to leave it. So uh, thanks for, for joining us. 